to Nunada, the Waves of Music. I'm Chaitra and today we will be talking about music, culture and cognition with someone who has thought a lot about all of these fields. It is wonderful to have Vijay Iyer with us today, an incredibly creative musician, a former physicist who then transitioned into music cognition to write his doctoral dissertation, and a MacArthur Fellow. Vijay Iyer is known to a lot of us as the jazz composer pianist. Hi Vijay, welcome to Ninada. It's amazing to have you here for our podcast today. Yes, well, th- thanks for having me again. I'm happy to be on the show. I think a lot of the interviews that you've given over time have covered the basics of like your early life and your transition to music from physics and things like that. So I don't want to delve too much into those things. Except maybe kind of ask you, um, what kind of music did you grow up with? I'm assuming you were around a lot of Indian classical Carnatic music growing up. And how did that influence your music landscape? Sure. I mean, um, you know, my parents came to the U.S. in the 60s. And at the time, they were among the first wave of immigrants from, from South Asia or from outside the West, period, and certainly from India. So. Um, actually, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, I didn't have a huge amount of exposure to Indian music. It was sort of sporadic and um, not consistent, and I didn't study it. You know, I didn't. I wasn't um, directly exposed to it in, uh, on a regular basis in a way that I could really account for or talk about. It was more like it was kind of in the background sometimes, um, and that was more through social experiences and gatherings like at temples or at um, every now and then there would be a concert like every few years something like that or like the Indian community where I was growing up in Rochester New York would have these annual gatherings and they'd have some kind of cultural show and maybe some little kid would sing a Carnatic song or do some Bharatanatyam dance or something like that but it wasn't like I was immersed in it No, it was actually not until I was in my early 20s and had left the East Coast and was um, starting graduate school in Northern California that I started um, really seeking it out, like wanting to delve into this aspect of my heritage. Mm-hmm. So it came a bit late and it was remedial. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't like trying to study it for the purposes of being able to be a Carnatic musician, but rather to be able to play with Carnatic musicians. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was a budding composer-performer, and so I was interested in the, the techniques. I kind of wanted to nerd out on, mm-hmm. like, Moras and Cordovais and things like that. Right. Um, you know, that was also a point where my generation, which is basically the first generation of South Asian Americans in the U.S. born in this country, were coming of age in the early, mid-90s. So... You know, for me to be, decide to become an artist at all was new. And so it was from that standpoint that I felt like, okay, who, what is this heritage to me? You know, and so I started studying it casually and mostly just by going to a lot of concerts. You know, at the time I was living in Berkeley in Oakland, California. And so I'd go down to Palo Alto and San Jose where there was a huge, particularly South Indian community um, in Silicon Valley, essentially, the early Silicon Valley. And they had the resources to host traveling musicians from India. So that's when I really got to go like almost every week to hear Carnatic music in a 
auditorium full of like a thousand South Indians, you know, mm-hmm. which I had never had in my life before. So that was new to me. And so I was like catching up to the three-year-old kid sitting next to me who like knew how to keep the dala and yeah. was singing along. And so I had a lot of catching up to do. And even then, I wasn't really so concerned with learning the nomenclature of ragas and stuff. Like I could hear the pitch structures and I could hear the rhythmic structures. And I just wanted to witness the music in real time, you know, see how people interact and create from the materials they're given. Right. Because that related to who I, you know, the musician I was, which was like someone very steeped in African American traditions, you know. Your context to Indian music was kind of from the Western classical music and African music, not the other way around. Yeah. That's very interesting. So, do you think that your training as a physicist or as a mathematician helped you in any regard? Is that part of why you then decided to transition into? more scientific study of, I don't know, music perception. It was all a series of accidents. I mean, I honestly, like, music was part of my life from when I was three years old. Right. You know, I started studying violin then and started playing piano by ear Mm -hmm. then. So, you know, then finally, 20 years later, I realized that music could actually be my life. Mm -hmm. And in between, I tried a lot of other things. So one of them was science. Part of it was, like I said, you know, as my generation was coming of age, we were just figuring out that maybe we could even become artists, like yep. the world would let us do that, which um, was not obvious to us growing up. Yep, your parents would let you. Actually. Well, not just what they would let me do, but what I felt ready for, you know. Huh. Um, I mean, I did a lot of things they didn't let me do. That wasn't the problem. Maybe that's another interview. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was more like, uh, you know, it wasn't just about me being a beautiful kid. It was about me feeling like particularly American culture would have a place for a person like me mm. as an artist in public. You know, there was, it wasn't obvious that there was such a place. I mean, I didn't grow up seeing people who look like me on TV or seeing names like mine in the newspaper or in magazines or in movies or, right. or, you know, any of that. It was all, or even literature, you know, like the first Desi author I ever heard of was Salman Rushdie. And that was, you know, because he had a fatwa, you know, <laughs> against him. So like he was like a global, global sort of anti-hero or something. It wasn't like there was Aziz Ansari and Hassan Minhaj and, you know, mm-hmm. even the people I, hate in the u.s politics like nikki haley or bobby jindal or all these people there were no people like that you know at that time so for me to even think that um, i could be in public and have that kind of freedom to uh offer something to the world you know that was not obvious to any of us it had to be one it had to be one we had to win it over you know we had to fight for it and what was the process of doing that well, some of it was like um, people didn't fully accept it, except someone like me or, you know, I, I say us because there were a few of us around that time. I mean, I started working with Rudresh Mahantapa mm-hmm. in 1995. Mm-hmm. We met each other right around that time and realized we were sort of in the same predicament, which was mm-hmm. like, okay, we as non-white, non-black Americans are trying to find our way mm-hmm. in this art form that's associated with either of those but none of us you know mm-hmm. or if so if we were to 
show up, we had to kind of be overtly Indian, like Zakir Hussain playing with John McLaughlin or Badal Roy playing with Miles Davis. Just, you know, like there were people playing traditional Indian instruments in jazz context, but that's not what either of us was doing. Right. So people didn't know what to expect. They didn't know how to spell or pronounce mm -hmm. our names. They saw, they didn't necessarily accept us as obviously American. Mm -hmm. No, we had been born and raised here and had American accents okay. and um, all these kinds of things. Like when I would put out an album, people would want to know what was Indian about it, mm -hmm. you know, and that for me was like my own path of discovery for myself. Like I, I also wanted to know, but that wasn't like the selling point for me. Right. And then the other thing about it was living for me, living in Northern California, which is this kind of former hippie paradise where, you know, it was all white Californians having this exotic experience with anything Indian, you know, like Ali Akbar Khan College of Music was there and all these yoga, yoga. mandarams and, you know, people would, anytime I would meet like a white person, they'd say, oh, I, first of all, they'd say like, oh, I've been to India, I, you know, and they'd always talk about their trip to the Himalayas and like, you know, or to Rajasthan. They wouldn't even know anything about South India or that there's a difference. They'd ask me, what's the difference between North and South India? Yeah. And I'm like, most of between Eastern and Western Europe, like a lot of things, but I don't, how am I supposed to answer that? <laughs> and then even they would say that like, oh, I, I didn't know that India was in Asia. So it was just like a lot of ignorance that I was dealing with, you know? Wow. Both the, so there was the exoticizing thing, there was the ignorance, and then there was the kind of um, fact that people in our generation who lived and breathed as Americans were not immediately accepted as people who could comment on American life or who could like offer something to it. So it was just all those things. Yeah. So this kind of reminds me of Trevor Noah's um, line in his book. So he says that there are different dialects that he's dealing with. And then he's like, oh, I realized that if I learned this language, even though I looked different, if I spoke the language, they'd be confused. And this language would be kind of like a unifier between us. And they would kind of accept me as their own and then stop bullying me. So it's interesting to me that here you had the language on your side, you had the music on your side, presumably two greatest factors of identification, and still it, you weren't really, you didn't get the identification that you were speaking out or that was manifested in these two factors. It just took a long time. I mean, I'd say that I am fine now. You know, I mean, but, it's, but now it's been 25 years. So. No, I mean, it wasn't like, <laughs> it, it wasn't manifest immediately. Right, 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 right. Waters, Well, right. like I said, we were, we were all new. We were new to each other. You know, mm -hmm. um, it was new for us to come of age and find our footing and find our mobility and, you know, empower ourselves. That was new. Um, right. And even to move in a direction that wasn't our parents' direction. I mean, most of the... You know, it's like, it's true that there were non-Western immigrants coming here in the 60s, but most of those people were curated for their scientific and technical expertise. So what that meant is that most of our parents were those kinds of people. You know, they were not artists themselves. They didn't really have any investment in the arts, except maybe just in passing or like, it was the sort of thing you made your dutiful daughter do. It's like take part of the Nottingham lessons or something like that to make them like more marriageable or something. I don't know. But it wasn't it wasn't about like the arts as an inherently valid pursuit, you know? Yeah. Um, so that even that had to be fought for. Yeah. It was a lot of different kind of um 
corners to navigate. Anyway, I'm fine now. <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a huge understatement, yes. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about maybe your composition. Uh, how do you approach writing music? Well, um, I've tried a lot of different things. I mean, I've been trying to compose for about 30 years. So there's no one answer to it. I guess I've tried to amass a range of um, techniques and vocabularies and stuff, but I still have to depend on my ear and my intuition too. And also, you know, I create music for different settings and sometimes it's like writing music for myself, for my band, which means that I don't have to over-specify mm -hmm. everything that happens. I can just sort of create a sketch or a template, like basically like, you know, the equivalent of setting a line of text to a raga and a tava, you know, which is like you create a structure and then you empower musicians to navigate through it and move around in it and create with it. So that's sort of what, um, you know, when I'm creating for myself and my groups, that's what we're doing. We're sort of creating these structures that we can then move through and across and create within. So that's not that different from what you're used to, you know? Mm -hmm. Even just within that, like, what do I want to accomplish with any of those things? <laughs> like, what, why? Yeah. And that's sort of like an ongoing question that any creative artist has to ask themselves. It's like, what is the raison d'etre? You know, like, what is its reason for being beyond just the fact that you could? Because it's like, you could make anything. Yeah. But would you, if you're like cooking or something, like you could put any ingredients together and then fry it up and serve it. But would you? <laughs> like, who would you serve it to? <laughs> you know, like, what, what are you offering to somebody? Mm -hmm. What kind of experience are you offering to somebody? Or, or what, um, where is this going to carry somebody? Or what, um, how is it going to make them feel? You know? And also, what, are, what is it about? You could say, you know, even with instrumental music, you could ask what it's about or what it, what kind of work it's doing mm -hmm. um, emotionally and embodied on the body. How does it work on the body? Okay. Yeah. Is, is there a larger philosophy that you work within? Like a very zoomed out big picture kind of thing? <laughs> I don't know if that's for me to answer. Maybe somebody else after I die I can write the definitive analysis, analytical <laughs> I don't know. I, I, mean, I was going to say also that I also, I also write for context very different from my own my own context as a player so like you know lately over the last 15 or almost 20 years i've been composing for western classical musicians who have a very different set of skills and things they're trained to do and things they're good at and in particular they're not generally trained to improvise they don't really they're not empowered creatively in the same way that you or i might feel you know um like they don't necessarily feel that they can make decisions in the course of performance but that's a bit of an illusion i've found you know like you, because what they do decide is how to interpret what's on the page and that itself is a creative process that i just try to awaken those musicians to that they are already empowered more than they realize to make make a choice and act on it but anyway that's taken me down a very different path in terms of like through composed as it's called or notated scores which you know i might 
It might be hundreds of pages of notated music instead of one or two pages, you know. <laughs> so, so it's like a lot of it's a lot more work. It's a very different kind of work. But I draw from my experience as a as a performer and as an improviser uh, in terms of um, how I create form, what I looking to hear or looking to feel in the course of a piece, what I think a piece can do. I've learned a lot in the course of performance about what music can do. So I try to bring all of that wisdom to the table. Talking about what music can do, like, what does it mean to you? Like, when you hear the word music or when you think about it in an abstract way or non-abstract way, whatever way, what is it that you feel when you think about it? Well, this is the funny thing, particularly in my now considerable time interacting with musicians in the West and music scholars in the West, is that we don't all agree on what that word is, what that word is pointing to. And certainly also like working with and collaborating with and learning from generations of black musicians in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, and other musicians from all over the planet, you know, musicians from China and Japan and Korea and West Africa, South America, Caribbean, you know, so like I've had chances to interact with and count and, and play with and learn from musicians from all over the planet, you know, of all different ages and backgrounds and different sensibilities about music. And even like within New York City, like I've worked with poets and rappers and DJs and electronic musicians and with noise artists and sing, you know, singer songwriters, all kinds of people. As these experiences accumulate, mm -hmm. I have started to realize that when we use a word like music, we're also kind of inherently um, see, I even just did it. When we use the word we, <laughs> right? We are making some assumption about who we are. Like, what is the limit of that circle that is encompassed by the first person plural, you know, by us? Who do I mean by us? So when I use the word music, I'm also invoking some sense of us, you know, like, this is music to us. Mm -hmm. This music means something to us. And by, and saying that, I'm saying that also, to some people, certain forms of music do not register as music or are rejected as music. And often that has to do with whether or not you see the other person as a human being. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that the category of music is this category of the human being. So you think music transcends cultural differences? No, I don't, I'm not saying that. Okay, good. Okay. I, I think that the idea of the human being is very culturally specific. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree with you. So it's the opposite, actually. It's that it, we're so quick to delimit who we mean by us. Yeah. And we don't even realize that we're doing it. Yeah, that's that's very true. So that then brings us to all of the things in your thesis and the work that you've been doing since. The whole concept of music as a separate entity that is... I don't know, a form of communication or like it has, it, it's being used as a tool by us or we evolved music for some reason or maybe we didn't evolve music. Some people say it's just like a artifact of other things that evolved. Um, yeah. uh, all of these theories are out there, but you have a totally different view on what this is. And I want to kind of like go into it a little bit and talk about that. One of the first concepts that you talk about is the concept of micro timing and expressive timing. Can you like very shortly describe what expressive timing is and how maybe micro timing and cultures can interact together 
maybe giving rise to what we perceive as different genres of music. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I can answer that question on those terms because I I, um, I think genre is another one of those words that is um, uh, it does a kind of violence, you know. So I'm I'm careful about it. Um, here's what happened. <laughs> Okay, in 1994, I quit physics, right? I w- I'd started in a PhD program in physics, and then I, music kind of like seized me, like it took control, assumed control of my body, I can say, and of my brain. And um, I just found myself realizing that science academia was not for me, you know, and particularly physics academia was that actually that, or maybe a more positive way to put it is that I wanted to be an artist. And I felt, I realized that I could. Finally, you know, like I said, it took me 20 years before I realized that I could. It's a long time. <laughs> uh, so there I was, this very active and passionate musician who still had some kind of weird orbit around the university. I was at UC Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. And I was leaving physics and starting to just take, while I was there, while I could, I just started taking courses in the music department. Mm-hmm. And one of the courses I took, was with this guy David Wessel, who was one of the pioneers in field of music cognition. Uh, he did some early work on perception of timbre that sort of changed the whole game. It was data driven, and this, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, he did this kind of work that found these different dimensions of what we mean by timbre. Mm-hmm. And then he became involved in computer music, the early days of computer music, and at that time, the science of, I guess, what was called psycho acoustics, you know, was very directly influential on the early days of computer music because people were trying to synthesize sounds and they wanted to know how it worked, like how we listen, what are we listening to and for. And so synthesizing timbres, that whole art was driven by the science around timbres. So he was very pivotal and that worked in the early years with Don Buchla and Don Chowning and these different computer music pioneers too. Uh, then he was recruited by Pierre Boulez to help run this place called IRCOM, which is this computer music research institute in Paris. Uh, and then he was brought to UC Berkeley to basically start his own computer music research institute there. And so then, like, he met me and he's like, oh, well, you're this, like, really interesting musician and you have this science background, so let's figure out something else for you to do. You don't need to leave. You don't need to quit school. Let's, like, let's see what else you can do. And so it was through that that, like, I... I mean, I just very fortuitously happened to meet him. And then he was like, here, take this course. See if you like it. It was like, there was two different courses I took with him. One was like Foundations of Music Cognition and another was Foundations of Computer Music, you know. And just in the course of spending that whole year with him, we figured out that like we could create a PhD program Mm -hmm. for me, just like an individual ad hoc PhD program that wouldn't be attached to any existing department. Mm -hmm. You know, this is typical of something that could happen only in Berkeley, you know, <laughs> which is like the the home of 60s counterculture. Someone had probably like figured out that they had to, they could not exist. They could not abide by the existing structures and mm-hmm. had to create their own. So, mm-hmm. so I benefited from whoever had laid that groundwork before. So I was able to pull together my own interdisciplinary doctoral program and it was very improvised in the sense that like I sort of followed my nose and I had good advisors. I had David Wessel, Jordan Lewis, mm-hmm. the composer and scholar Ollie Wilson, mm-hmm. um, the 
psychology researcher, a guy who does re- research on audition on list on the ear to brain pathway, um, Irv Hafter. So all those people were on my committee, and and I found myself doing this thing, paying attention to music cognition. Mm-hmm. But I found myself very critical of it from the very beginning. I felt like, okay, well, I see what you all are talking about, but I also know what I know from 20 years of making music. Yeah. And they don't fully jive, like they're not quite... I felt like there was something that scholars were missing. Mm-hmm. And so the way I chose to deal with it was by talking about embodiment. Mm-hmm. So I, I will come around to microtiming. I'm sorry, this is like the long, I, took, I started from the end. Yeah, all of coming back. going to happen. Yeah. So you, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was partly because there was this emerging understanding of embodied cognition in the cognitive sciences in general, not even specific to music. But no, in fact, no one had really brought that into conversation with music cognition yet. So I was like, well, this is obvious because this is what's missing for me from what everyone's talking about. It's the fact that, you know, music doesn't just happen up here in the, fo- in the forehead, like in the sixth and seventh chakras, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a lot happening, um, as I say, below the neck. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so this was about, this is that, like for me, uh, both as a doer of music, meaning like someone who had this embodied connection to to multiple instruments mm-hmm. and then also as a lifelong listener and knowing what it felt like to experience music in my body mm-hmm. you know whether it was through dance or just some kind of like sensory activation you know mm-hmm. rhythm entrainment was a big part of it yeah and so then you know looking at the way that scholars in that field of music cognition mm-hmm. had historically talked about rhythm and timing it was always through the modulation of tempo. Mm -hmm. So expressive timing had always been, for them, the way that you would slow down at the end of a phrase, slow down the global tempo of a piece of music, which is what they do in Western classical music. Mm -hmm. You know, you reach a sort of final cadence, you give it a breath to kind of like land with a certain intensity, and that helps sort of accentuate structure, essentially. But that's not what happens in almost any other music in the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's not many other musics that do yeah. that. You know, like Javanese Gamelan is another one, maybe. But most music is tied to dance context, and that means that tempo needs to be steady. Mm-hmm. And so what is expressive timing in the context of steady tempo? That was the question, right? Mm. And others had asked this question, too. A dear friend of mine, Jeff Bilnis, had done a master's thesis at MIT mm. in the early mid-90s with this very question. And he was looking at the way that people would deviate from a metric grid. But mm. the grid itself was fixed. Yeah. So that's what he, he called them deviations. Mm. I didn't really like that term because it made it seem like there was something wrong with it. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyway, for me, the way to um, generally refer to all of that, like how one... Um, is expressive with timing around an isochronous pulse. Mm-hmm. That's microtiming. That's expressive microtiming. That was the phrase that I used for it because it was it's expressive timing, but it's not about global tempo. Okay. You know, it's about local second order relationships mm-hmm. to an existing pulse. Okay. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. So how how do you think this relates to then cultural habitations of people? 
what role does culture have to play in formulating your inherent rhythm or your inherent microtiming? Well, it's, um, I don't know, I, maybe it's because I have roots in two places that are, have all this kind of violent oppression in them, you know, <laughs> which is India and the United States. Mm -hmm. So I don't think of this as some kind of benign thing. Like, oh, well, if you're different from me, so you're going to hear it differently. Mm. Actually, what's happening is, like, I, you know, as I was just describing, the entire field of music cognition had erased this possibility. You know, it basically refused to acknowledge that there might be some other way of thinking about or experiencing mm -hmm. rhythm and timing. So that it's the violence of erasure, you mm -hmm. know, that renders people completely insensitive like beyond insensitive just um i don't want to be ableist and say deaf to but like it's a it, it signifies a refusal to attune oneself to other ways of knowing or living yes i mean what culture is is actually largely it's about hegemony right <laughs> it's about so well you might have other ways of being and knowing that have a subaltern status yeah. in relation to a Super, a superstructure or a sort of like overarching culture. So you can't really talk about culture without talking about power, is what I mean. Yeah. And certainly like when you talk about culture as plural, you're talking about power relations mm -hmm. among them and within them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is part of like I was, I don't think I was that harsh in my critique, in my dissertation, but I was still like saying, look, here's a bunch of stuff that you missed. Because you're Eurocentric, because this entire field is Eurocentric. As most fields tend to be, like, at least most fields that originate in the West, fields that originate anywhere and then the West kind of has like a, a, a describable power of like pushing through different things and claiming, I don't know, unclaimed lands for themselves, and, and even in an abstract way, like, they do tend to kind of overpower everything else and be like, okay, this is the right way to do it without any any thought to why things that are different still are valid even if they're different yeah still like well, I, I agree i mean that there is that basically that it's the colonial mentality you know mm -hmm. it's that sort of history of oppression and erasure and mispronunciation and mis you know like i remember when i was traveling with my family in south india and we passed a sign i'm like i saw this really long name i'm like what is that he said oh that's what they used to call Trivandrum. Yeah. <laughs> I said, oh my God, that's like, I can't believe how wrong they were. So it's just like all these mishearings are kind of like curtailments or erasures. That's the history of imperialism, you know, it's violence. But I also want to say that even um, when we talk about Carnatic music, we're also talking about such histories. Oh, definitely. So, so I don't want to make it seem like the West is the only place that visits suffering on the rest of the planet. I think so, there is like a hierarchy that there, there is some sort of monopoly of anything, any art form by some people. It's it's all based on oppression. And right now I think we're trying to come to terms with that in within the Carnatic community, mainly because of T. M. Krishna and his yes, book yeah. talks about this. But Hopefully people can, I think the difference between the West and what's happening in India, at least in Carnatic music, because of it, we, we still don't even recognize that this is 
something that is oppressive that people have been doing over years. Coming to terms with it, I think, is the first step. Whereas the U.S. has kind of like come to terms with, okay, this exists. Maybe we should fix this at least for a Sitting here where I am, it's not so straight. I don't know. I'm living in Harlem and I don't know. But, you know, the moment we're in mm-hmm. as the United States is one of danger, you know, yeah. profound instability and, um, you know, increasing violence, like mm-hmm. oppressive, hate driven violence, fascism. Yeah. But it's also, a, you know, like when we said, when you said incarnatic music, we, <laughs> so like you did that we you know that first person plural yeah, thing yeah, again yeah and i'm like my thinking is that actually people outside of Carnatic music culture see it for what it is mm-hmm. it's wonderful that tm krishna sees it for what it is too but it's, it's not news to the rest of the world and certainly not to the rest of yeah. india you know mm-hmm. so it's more that he's using his privilege and his powerful position to try to do something about it and that's basically what you would like to see more people do. So do you think that the precipice that we're at today, be it in terms of Black Lives Matter protests and many other forms of protests around the world, I, I want to say, against what are fascist or fascist-like regimes, do you think this was a long time coming? Do you think it was reflected in the art in some way and people who were too oblivious to pay attention to these things just missed it? Well, um, I will say that in the U.S. there have been these kinds of nefarious forces at work for decades. Mm-hmm. To get to where we are now has taken, you know, in terms of this extreme right-wing fascist takeover, has been like a 50-year-long project. Mm. And you can trace it across generations, political generations, you know. Some of it was just real minor stuff about changing laws in ways that no one thought would make much of a difference. But little by little... It's amounted to this huge increase in inequality and defunding of the welfare state, the safety net that you think that a nation should offer its citizens or its people. People, yeah. (laughs) Um, All of that has just been drained away little by little over decades. Then beyond that, people have been trained to believe that that's what they want. So that's like the political side of it. It's like getting people to vote against their own interests. And that's been happening for a long time too. That's been part of that project, but it's accelerated recently because now with the harvesting of personal data, they can target you individually to lead you to believe something against your own personal best interest, you know, not even the interest of your quote unquote community or your notion of us. They can get you to vote against yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that's the most insidious, accelerated form of it that we've experienced in the last even just five years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with social media. Yes. Uh, and it's the fact that it is largely unregulated. And you know, Zuckerberg is one of the richest people in the world. Mm-hmm. And he is unaccountable to any nation or state or municipality. Yeah. You know, he just does whatever he wants. He's wealthier than most nations. So that's where we are, you know, we're, we're sort of at the mercy of oligarchs who are accumulating unimaginable power and wealth. So where do we go from here? Like, what powers do we have? It's, it's very, very limited as it is, as individuals. But 
I feel like, yes, social media is hugely a factor in precipitating this, but it can also be a factor in pushing us back a little bit in terms mm -hmm. of organizing efforts to do so at community level. Well, certainly, like, that's kind of been the nature of recent waves of protests that you were talking about and that we were both talking about, which is you have um, people forming networks of care mm -hmm. and networks of resistance mm -hmm. at the local level and maybe at larger levels where people can actually organize. But there has to be something else that happens globally. My friend Rana Dasgupta, do you know, he's a novelist, writer, a year or so ago, he wrote this opinion piece, I think it was in The Guardian, where what he was, he was basically pointing at the failure of the idea of the nation state. Mm -hmm. So like basically historicizing that, first of all, that nations are not immortal. And even the idea of a nation is kind of recent. You know? mm -hmm. So understanding that whole formation as historically embedded and having a beginning and possibly an end and then thinking what's past that. And so he was talking a lot of the stuff about the fact that Apple is wealthier than Great Britain, you know, yeah. and is not paying taxes mm -hmm. to the United States or to any, any yeah. U.S. state even. You know, basically he was calling for some system of international financial regulation mm. that would create some sense of global accountability. Mm -hmm. You can't just harvest and plunder and extract and then not give back, you know. So, I mean, that's just like a kind of fantasy in a way right now. It's, uh, it's a fantasy along the lines of abolish the police. Like, yes, I think of myself as that kind of abolitionist, but I also know that it's not happening tomorrow, you yeah. know. Yeah. So what are the steps along the path mm -hmm. to that? And it's hard to see right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, people study these things, and so I defer to the scholars. <laughs> Speaking of, we'll end on this note, I guess. If you were to recommend one book to people, which which one would you recommend? One book? Oh, my God. Okay, multiple if you want to recommend one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, there's a lot of books even right behind me here. You know, the first one that came to mind was uh, Angela Davis, mm -hmm. Lose Legacies in Black Feminism, mm -hmm. for one, and then the other, Women, Race, and Class. Those two of hers are a good start. I guess I'd add a third one of hers, Are Prisons Obsolete? <laughs> all three of them. All three of them are pretty important right now. Yes. But yeah. particularly, like, I mean, that first one I mentioned, because it has to, it sort of reframes the history of music mm -hmm. that uh, in the 20th century was called jazz and blues, mm -hmm. all that stuff, um, and rethinking it as in terms of its women creators and seeing them as innovators and as radical agents of change, you know, as feminists and as people who imagined different forms of life, you know, and brought them into being. Yeah, well, if Angela Davis is, I, I kind of want to adopt her as my grandma, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could you, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> Angela Patti. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for being here and giving me your time. Hope to interact with you more and learn more. Sure. <laughs> The pleasure, and thank you for your series. I look forward to hearing more of it. Thank you. That was Vijay Iyer talking to us not just about music, but also about languages in general, but especially words like we, us, culture, what depth and nuances these words embody. Thank you for listening, and if you want to know more about Vijay's music or his other works, 
please go to vijayayur.com or our website ninadamusic.blogspot.com for more references. Until next time. Thank you.